Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham lived a faith life. You may be seated. The wonderful presence of God, as I mentioned. I appreciate the people at Atlanta West who serve in ministry, many in obscurity. No one ever knows what you do. Uh, you serve the Lord through ministries in this church. And I appreciate it and never take it for granted. In January, we are talking about the blessed life. And I want to review just briefly and underscore a few principles from Sunday. That blessing is never arbitrary because God is not whimsical. He is no respecter of persons. He doesn't show favoritism. He honors people who honor Him. To be blessed is to be filled with benefits that only come from God. And it results from living in harmony to the principles of God's Word. This Old Testament patriarch Abraham, the father of the faithful, kind of the headwaters of the blessed people and the blessed life. Reviewing my text from Sunday. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now remind you of the two components of blessing in Abraham's life. He was called to get out of his old life. And to go to the land that I will show you. There are always these two components at work. Calling out. Calling to, coming out from, going to the promises of God. That was the story of Abraham. Abraham is called to get out and to go to. If you sum up Abraham's life, he is the man of faith. I like an acronym of faith that I heard years ago, that faith means that forsaking all, I trust him. Uh, that isn't a Bible acronym or definition, but that's what faith really is. Forsaking all I trust him. In Hebrews eleven six, the writer of Hebrews gives us somewhat of a definition of faith. That without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God, he that comes to God, must believe that he is, that God exists. That makes sense, right? You have to believe that there is a God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have to believe that there is a God. But the second component of faith is that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That it matters to God that you seek him and respond to his word by obedience. So I want to share five traits of Abraham's life that I believe made him a candidate for the blessings of God. We kind of see this as his life unfolds. The first is this something we must do, and I want to kind of apply these. You have to embrace God's plan for your life. You have to embrace God's plan for your life. Abraham's past was marked by a culture 
and a family of idolatry. The Bible says in Joshua chapter 24 that Abraham's father, Terah, and Abraham's people served other gods, says on the other side of the flood, beyond the Euphrates River. So if you go back to Abraham's father, his house, Ur of the Chaldees, where God first spoke to him that this was a pagan country, an advanced civilization, the home of the ziggurats, those ancient pyramids of sorts. This was advanced Babylon and Chaldea, Ur of the Chaldees rather, and God calls him out of a pagan people. Now it's interesting to know that God spoke to Abraham while he was still living in Terah's house under the influence of idolatry and in a pagan country. I don't know what God saw in Abraham there, but he spoke to him in his old life. And we should have faith that God can speak to people, whoever they are and where they are, and call them to come out from and go to the promises of God. That's the text from Sunday. Abraham, get out of your country, from your kindred, from your father's house. Go to a new country, a new life. The call of God involved a geographical relocation from Ur to Canaan, but it also involved a change of relationships, old and new. I want to make it clear that following the call of God doesn't always mean walking away from the people in your life. Sometimes the people in your life will applaud you, follow you, embrace this new life that you are walking into. But often they will reject you. There are times when stepping out by faith and embracing God's plan for your life means to walk away from people who do not embrace the life of faith. In the book of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus made this very plain. That if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father that is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father which is in heaven. And then Jesus said something that's kind of ironic. He said, I am not come to bring peace on the earth. I have come to bring a sword. A sword is something that divides. Now he is a prince of peace. Right? When he's born, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But over truth, truth often divides very households. Fathers from children. Amen? This is the Bible truth. Even in the Bible, if a, if a woman would come to God or a man without their spouse, and that unbelieving spouse would choose to depart, not with the believing spouse, pushing them out, forcing them out, but just serving God 1 Peter 3 would tell you that your, your behavior can win your unbelieving spouse. But it doesn't always work that way. And Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. Because truth can be a divider even of relationships. I have come to set a man at variance against his father. And the daughter against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. I'm not advocating tonight that the person who becomes a Christian, the believer, 
brings the sword, but it is truth that brings the sword. And our greatest loyalty has to be to God himself. And when God calls you out from a life of sin and calls you to his plan for your life, whatever it takes, you have to embrace God's plan for your life. Genesis 12 and 4 says that, So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. We'll find later that he is separated from Lot. I want to remind you of another scriptural principle about this embracing God's plan and what it sometimes means to relationships that do not hold up because of the sword that comes because of truth. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Therefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises that if we'll come out and God will be our Father, then Paul says that we should cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. John warned us in 1 John 2 that we should not love the world, neither the things that are in the world, so that the love of the Father would be in us. Abraham embraced God's plan for his life, and he began the journey of the blessed life. I've learned this, that salvation and submission go hand in hand. That when you believe in Jesus Christ as a Savior, turn from your sins and repentance, baptize in Jesus' name, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, your Savior also becomes your Lord. And as Lord, we are submitted to Him in every area of our life. So Abraham, for Abraham, the first step of faith in this journey to the blessed life was a step of embracing God's plan for his life. And what about you in 2016? Is that what you're doing? Are you embracing God's plan for your life? Are you willing to step out from your past, whether it is a sinful past, a carnal past, or maybe just a mediocre past, and embrace the call of God for your life, the plan of God for your life? If you believe that, Become a follower of Jesus Christ. It means this first step, this prerequisite to the blessing of God in your life. I've learned that God does not bless a maverick spirit, a self-willed spirit, a self-governing spirit. I understand rugged individualism. I understand the American dream. I understand human rights from a human perspective. But I also understand the kingdom of God is not man's kingdom. There is one Lord. He doesn't have a Congress. He doesn't have a judicial branch. He's the executive of the world. Amen. And he's the chief executive of my life. He is sovereign. He's a monarch. And I can trust him, but I don't have to get a table together of people to vote on the will of God. I simply have to discover what his word says, embrace it, and follow it, and I will lead the blessed life. The first step for Abraham to was embrace God's plan for his life. Secondly, Abraham cultivated a relationship with God. Not long after Abraham obeys the call of God, embraces his plan for his life, in Genesis 12, 5, he passes through the land to a place of Shechem. Now there's a tree there, and 
The Canaanites are there. The Lord appears to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 7. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Abraham begins to cultivate a relationship with God. God is making promises and Abraham is building an altar. Amen. Now, it's important for us to understand that this began a friendship with God. The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 23, the scripture says that Abraham believed God and his belief was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Now, there's a whole lot that can be said about the relationship between God and Abraham. Later I'll mention a story in the life of Abraham in a different context. But when God was preparing to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord says, Shall I hide the thing that I'm going to do from Abraham? There was a secret that only God knew. But his relationship with Abraham brought him to share that with Abraham and allowed Abraham to actually be an intercessor for his nephew Lot. I've learned that the blessed life cannot survive on spiritual experiences alone. Now we Pentecostals, and I love who we are, apostolic people, oneness Pentecostal people, we believe in the manifest presence of God. We believe that He inhabits the praises of our people. That where two or three are gathered together in His name, He is there in the midst, right? We believe that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we believe in the power of a spiritual experience. Now sometimes we're a little long and heavy on inspiration and a little short and light on application. I was raised in the church, sleeping under the pews, received the Holy Ghost when I was eight years old. I sought the Lord diligently with all the sins an eight-year-old could have, being raised in the church. I remember trying so hard to receive the Holy Ghost. When I received the Holy Ghost, it was so easy when I finally let God fill me instead of trying to earn it or beg Him to give me the Holy Ghost. Eight years old. took me a while to get up the courage to be baptized. Not because I was afraid of water. I just didn't want to get up in front of everybody and get baptized. But the ripe old age of eight years old, I received the Holy Ghost. But I would have to say, if I was to look back in my life, that from the age of eight till about the age of 16, I survived pretty much on experiences. Sunday school, church, family involvement, going through those peer pressure years of junior high. But when I was 16 years old, and I've related this experience before, really didn't intend to go there tonight. I'll just be brief about this. But when I was 16 years old, at a youth camp, I was challenged to build a relationship with God. I went home from that youth camp very broken, was at the altar every service, just broken, praying, crying, couldn't explain what was going on. But I made some commitments. I, I got an accountability partner, my best friend Bruce Starling. And we began to fast a day a week. And I made a covenant with God for prayer and fasting and Bible reading and 
And I started walking away from some other things that were not necessarily sinful, but they were robbers of my time. And I took time to pray and uh, always made it a point that my friend and I would fast a day a week and sometimes more, but that was our commitment to God. And I can say that before I knew that God had called me to preach, that God had called me to himself, to a relationship. And this is what happened with Abraham. Abraham never preaches a sermon. He never writes a book in the Bible. But he is the father of the faithful and a friend of God. I'm not preaching this message tonight or teaching whatever I'm doing uh, to try to get everybody to sign up for missions in the Congo. But I am calling us to a relationship with God that is more than a Sunday experience or a Wednesday night tingle up and down our spine. The blessed life cannot survive on experiences alone. You have to move beyond an emotionally oriented religion to a relationally oriented faith. So I'm going to spend a little time here. So don't please you know, try to think five points and divide it equally. Because I'm going to park right here a little bit about experiences versus relationship. All right? There's a big difference between that person. And a blessed life has to have more than just, you know, an encounter with God. And because of my long experience in Pentecost, being raised in the church, serving as a youth pastor, watching a lot across the fruited plains of North America and some around the world, I've learned that we have a tendency to be emotionally or experience-oriented. In fact, I remember teaching the book of Acts in Bible college, and, you know, the day of Pentecost was fully come, filled with the Holy Ghost, and I would ask my students a question. Is the Holy Ghost an experience, or is it a relationship? We always want to say it's an experience. You need to receive the Holy Ghost. We say you need to get the Holy Ghost. Like it's something that you could go buy or pick out at the store or find laying on the ground somewhere. Go up to the altar and kind of get beyond yourself and you break out speaking in other tongues and it is the greatest experience you've ever had in your life. But by definition, the Holy Ghost is not an experience. For the Bible said it is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. It is an experience that initiates a relationship, amen? The Lordship of Jesus Christ where He's the sovereign of your life. And it doesn't always feel good, amen? But you're still in a relationship. There are people who have experiences with God that they don't really know, that they don't really walk with, that they don't really serve. Much like the immoral relationships of our world that are like one night stands, but there is no lifelong commitment. But when you come to Jesus Christ, He commits Himself to you, and we commit ourselves to Him in a relationship that is lifelong. Amen? And it is good, bad, thick, thin. Whether we feel it or not, we're in a relationship with Him. And the Holy Ghost is Jesus Christ living in you by the power of His Spirit. And there are times that we are raised up together in heavenly places. We sit together in heavenly places. 
And I thank God for those experiences. Like Paul who said, I was caught up into the third heaven. Or like John in Revelation who sees the Lord himself. We have those times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. But you and I cannot survive on experience alone. We need a relationship with God. There are some characteristics of experiences that we have. Sometimes we feel conviction. We feel bad. We kind of had these feelings of regret about what we should have done or should be doing with our lives. We feel like we've been caught. We're afraid of the judgment. And other times experiences feel really good. Feelings of profound ecstasy in the presence of God. We're stirred by the music and maybe Brother Brandon plays a shout beat or the choir modulates to another key. Woo, you just feel it everywhere. Maybe even on a really good day, it's a persuasive sermon. <laughs> Sometimes it's just kind of a camaraderie of being together like, like young people at youth camp and there's 200 young people packed in the altar or AYC or you know, North American Youth Congress where 18,000 people are there together and you can't help but feel that, you know? One shall put a thousand to flight and two ten thousand to flight and here we are together and there's this powerful dynamic of being together. We feel that. You know, it could be some tragedy or some strong emotion and when that happens, typically we, we have all these intentions that we feel. We're drawn to some feeling of resolve about the future. We tell God that we're signing up for the missions field and a 40-day fast and we're going to read our Bibles through, not all in a year, but in 90 days. We're really jumping on board this train and it's moving really fast because we're, we're going to pray more. We're going to fast endlessly. We're going to spend more time in God's Word. We're going to reach everybody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, we really mean it. But then we walk out the door, and then there's Sonic waiting on us in a foot-long chili cheese coney dog with onions. And it all goes downhill from there. If you weren't here Sunday, watch the sermon and you'll understand. But, but in these spiritual times that are genuine, I'm not minimizing that moment. Because that moment can be very genuine. But we're stirred, right? But we're not changed. And the reasons that spiritual experiences alone don't change us is that they require little discipline. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In one place, Jesus said, take up your cross daily. Follow me. What we need probably more in the Pentecostal movement, the spirit-filled movement, is a double dose of daily discipline to the habits that make us true disciples of Jesus Christ. Because no single experience or string of experience will make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. No external stimulus like music, preaching, or intense feelings will do it. It takes you, along with God, 
making a commitment to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Abraham walked out, walked to, but he built an altar and cultivated a relationship with God. That's what we desperately need. Not based on emotion alone, but based on the power of a commitment to Jesus Christ. Sometimes those experiences honor the moment or honor the performer, the preacher, the singer, exalt a leader. Sometimes you walk away and you can feel tired and empty in the end. Maybe leave you feeling a little cynical about other people who also were there and felt the power of God. And you know how they lived when they walked out the door. And you can be cynical about yourself and give up on being changed because you think the experience didn't work. But God did His part. Amen? It's up to us to build an altar, to build a relationship, to cultivate something beyond that moment. Amen. That leads to the blessed life. Amen. James speaks about this. It's kind of like looking at yourself in the mirror, James says. And you behold yourself in the mirror. You look in the mirror and you see the kind of person you are. And then you just walk away and you forget. You're not evil. You're not well, uh, you know, ill-intentioned. You just walk away and you forget. So perhaps what we need in 2016 is to take the mirror home with us and hold the mirror up every day at a time of prayer, fellowship with God, and an encounter with the Word of God. Maybe for you, five minutes would be a good start. Maybe for you, it's adding 15 or another hour. But whatever that means for you to build an altar and cultivate a relationship with God, it leads to the blessed life. Abraham did it, and that's what we should do as well. Amen. The third thing I see in Abraham's life, and I certainly won't touch on everything about his life, but I think it's pretty powerful, is that Abraham trusted God as the source of blessing. When Abraham walked out of Ur the Chaldees, and he walks out with whatever he's got with him, <clears throat> he has no kids, I'm sure he has some flocks and herds to begin with, but it's only when God blesses him that his flocks and herds begin to multiply. Only after he walks out into that new land, toward that new land, that it really begins to happen. Amen. So Abraham kind of relaxes in the promises of God. And he realizes that he doesn't have to manipulate. He doesn't have to maneuver. He doesn't have to scheme to get ahead. And there's several great stories about Abraham trusting God as a source of blessing. Genesis 13 tells an interesting situation. Lot, you know, his nephew who went with him, he also has flocks and herds, and Abraham and Lot are being blessed, and the Bible tells us that the lamb was not able to support them. They had so much livestock that they were bumping into one another. Not enough grass land for both of them, grazing land. And so Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen get into some arguments. Maybe over watering. Maybe over a particular pasture area. And so Abraham calls Lot in. Abraham does not say this. He doesn't say, look Lot, 
If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be here. Abraham doesn't say, look, kid, I want you to go find you a place, you know, because this is my promised land, and if it wasn't for me, you'd be a nothing. Don't ever forget it. He doesn't say that. Abraham says to Lot, you know, Lot, we don't want to have any strife between us, your herdsmen and my herdsmen, and the whole land is before you. So I tell you what, Lot, I want you to separate from me, and if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. It doesn't really matter which way you go, Lot, because I know God has promised to bless me no matter what. What an attitude that he realized it's not trying to maneuver Lot out of the way so that he could get the best pasture land. He can just say, Lot, you pick first. And Lot does. Lot, of course, picks the well-watered plain of Jordan. When you think about Lot, he's a pretty selfish guy. Old Uncle Abe brought me with him. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. Love you, Abraham. I think I'll take the best pasture. You can just kind of get the leftovers. Abraham offered, after all, so why not be selfish? (laughs) And Lot is. And we know that before God destroys it, it's like the garden of the Lord. It's like the land of Egypt told Zoar. Lot chooses the plain of Jordan. He goes to the east and they separate. And Abraham dwells in the land of Canaan, the cities of the plain. So, excuse me, Abraham dwells in the land of Canaan. And here's Abraham with this incredible attitude that, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens to me as long as I'm living in obedience to God. God has promised to bless me. And I realize that God is the source of my blessing. Now, I talked about this some Sunday, but you don't have to cheat, you don't have to lie, you don't have to swindle, you don't have to pilfer a scheme, you don't have to embezzle. If you do it right, God will bless you. Abraham believes that God is a source of blessing. And it is after Abraham separates from Lot and he takes the leftovers that in Genesis chapter 13, after, uh, and the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are. I want you to look north and south and east and west. Abraham, as far as you can see, I will give all this land to you and your descendants after you. When Abraham chooses to trust God as a source of blessing, it unleashes a reinforcement and an extension of the promise of God to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make your descendants like the dust of the earth. If anybody could count the dust of the earth, that's what your descendants are going to be. So now, Abraham, I want you to arise and walk through the land. Walk through the length of it and the breadth of it. I'm going to give it to you. Because I, Abraham, am the source of blessing. And if I choose to bless you, I will bless those that bless you. I will curse him that blesses you. I'll make your name great. I will make you a blessing. God is the source of blessing. Nephew Lot, living down around Sodom and Gomorrah. Five kings against four. They come and attack Sodom. They carry them away. They carry Lot away. They carry much spoil away. Abraham finds out about it. He is now a very wealthy man. And he takes some of his trusted soldiers, 318 trained servants, born in his own house. 
He pursues after them, attacks them, uh, uh, kind of takes victory over them, and he brings back all the spoil of that battle against the five kings that have attacked the king of Sodom and Lot is taken captive. Now, God has blessed Abraham with tremendous riches, flocks and herds, and now he's got all the spoil from this battle. And a very interesting character walks into his life. His name is Melchizedek. Theologians have tried to figure out who he is forever. The king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God. He blesses Abraham. And Abraham takes 10% of everything that he has gotten in the spoils of war. His men, his hands, his plan. And he gives it to Melchizedek. He pays tithes to Melchizedek. And he blesses God by paying tithes to the priests of God. He blesses. He knows that God is a source of blessing and he trusts God. And we see this early experience of paying tithes. Hebrews 6 talks about it. Hebrews 6 and 20 about Jesus Christ. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of the most high God. He met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all being first translated king of righteousness and also king of sailing, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham, as great as Abraham was, he didn't say, I'm the fountainhead, the end of everything. He said, I'm going to pass this blessing on. Amen. He gave him a tenth of the spoils. Now after this battle, Abraham's paid tithes to Melchizedek. The king of Salem comes to Abraham. Now remember, he's trusting God as a source of blessing. And he says, Abraham, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, can't thank you enough for delivering us out of the hands of those five kings. And Abraham, I want to pay you back. I want to pay for your services for delivering us. And uh, so I just want to bless you. And to the king of Sodom, Abraham says, Take your goods to yourself. He said, I've raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and I will not take anything that is yours, lest down the road you, pagan, ungodly king, should say, I made Abraham rich. Abraham said, I'm not going to take anything that would taint the blessings of God in my life. Amen. Now, I don't think it would have been a sin or wrong, but Abraham said, I'm going to be squeaky clean in my business dealings and everything I do so that no one can ever say that Abraham is rich because of ill-gotten gain. He trusted God as the source of blessing. He led the blessed life. No matter how smart, how talented, how hardworking you are, if you will make God your business partner, you can go beyond 
or your human potential when you are blessed. Remember, being blessed is better than being smart, talented, creative, right? It's better than having business sense or business acumen. That's what it means to be blessed. Abraham. Abraham. He embraces God's plan for his life. Abraham cultivates a relationship with God. Abraham trusts God for blessing. And Abraham demonstrates complete obedience to God. If you kind of walk through his life, you will find that Abraham, this great man of faith, he waits a hundred years to be a dad of Isaac. I know there's Ishmael. Not really, my message is not about him tonight. But Sarah's 90, Abraham's 100, when laughter is born into their life. And Isaac is growing up. In Genesis 22, the Lord comes to Abraham. And the Bible says that after these things, God tested Abraham. I want you to think about this. Here's a man living in Ur of the Chaldees. He leaves everything behind. After all the things that I've told you about Abraham's life, you would think that that was good enough. But when God entrusts you, He has first tested you. So in Genesis 22, He calls Abraham and calls his name. They're friends, right? Abraham's a friend of God. And Abraham says to God, Here I am. And the Lord says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac. He doesn't even acknowledge Ishmael. Take your son. Isn't God kind of rubbing it in a little bit? Your only son, Isaac. The only hope of all the promises that I've ever made to you are in Isaac. And I want you to take him, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. The Bible doesn't say that Abraham fleeced God, fasted and prayed, tried to get God to change his mind. He's probably close to 120 years old, 100 when Isaac's born. Question of how old Isaac was. He's old enough to carry wood. He's old enough to talk to his dad. Probably old enough to run off into the distance too, but he doesn't. The Bible says, Genesis 22, 3, Abraham rose early in the morning. The very next day, saddled his donkey. Two of his young men went with him. Isaac, his son, split the wood and went to the place that God told him of. He saw the place far off, told the servants to stay. Come on, Isaac, let's go. He says these famous words. The lad and I will go yonder in worship. And we will come back to you. That's an amazing statement. Don't know how. Everything's riding on this promise that God has given me. God called it sacrifice. I call it worship. Takes the wood, the burnt offering, Isaac, his son, the fire in his hand. He goes and prepares to offer his son, ties him, puts him on the altar, raises the knife in his hand, and as he does, the Lord stops him. 
and says to Abraham, look, there's a ram in the thicket. And there is a substitute. What a great doctrine of the Bible, right? The substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus Christ was for us. He calls the name of the place, the Lord will provide. In the mound of the Lord it shall be provided, Jehovah Jireh. And then, after this complete obedience, the Lord calls to Abraham the second time out of heaven and said, by myself have I sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sandwiches on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Of everything you could say about the blessed life, ultimately it comes to this, that the cross in our lives the test of discipleship is complete obedience to the will of God. As, much, as unreasonable as God's demand of Abraham was on the other side of this act of sacrifice, it makes all the sense in the world when we look back. And when you're walking into the test of obedience, when you're walking into a place where God is saying, I really want to know, do you love me more than anything? Are you willing to even give back to me what I have promised to you, what I have blessed you with? Only when you look back will you see that it was God who was preparing to bless you even more if you were willing to demonstrate complete obedience to God in your life. Abraham, an incredible man of faith, the blessed life. The fifth thing about Abraham that I want to point out tonight is what I encourage you to do, and that is to live by faith in God. Now that sounds really simple, but the blessed life is the faith life. And above everything that you can say of Abraham... You have to say that Abraham was a friend of God and all of that, but that Abraham was a man of faith. I want to show you just a couple of scriptures, not on the screen necessarily, but follow me. Romans 4, 16. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now you say Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. No, Abraham is the father of us all who are the people of faith. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed God. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Who contrary to hope, this is about Abraham, believed in hope so that he would become the father of many nations as it was spoken to him, so shall thy descendants be. And being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver or stagger at the promise of God through unbelief, 
But he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham is this man of faith. If you get your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, there's quite a portion of Scripture that is about Abraham or a little application of these people who seek a better country. But there are two statements about Abraham, the faith of Abraham. The first is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. You'll notice this verse on the screen. And I've already preached about this, so I just want to summarize Abraham as a man of faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. The first statement about Abraham as a man of faith is that Abraham obeyed God and he went out to a place having no idea where he was going. Now I like to know where I'm going. When my wife and I got married, way back in the day I had a little red notebook. I knew exactly where we were going every day. I had it all budgeted out. I like to know. If I'm going to go somewhere to minister, I want to know as much as I can about it. That's my personality. I think once in our life, we went on a little vacation, just my wife and me, and we didn't get a hotel room. We didn't plan anything. We just kind of winged it. That was a great experience. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> but that's not my personality. You just get up in the morning and say, okay, God, <coughs> where do we go today? Abraham, you just kind of follow me. You don't have to know. Not giving you a map, not giving you a blueprint, not telling you a whole lot, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, I know the promises of God are yes and amen, and I know our eternal destiny is secured in God. I understand all of that. But where God has for you in 2016 and beyond may be a great adventure of the unknown. But the safest place in the world is the blessed life, a life of faith. And the first thing about Abraham that Hebrews 11 speaks of when it refers to him as a man of faith. Hebrews 11, all the heroes of faith of the Bible are kind of condensed in this one powerful chapter. That's the first thing we know about him. The second thing we know about Abraham is that he willingly offered his son. Hebrews eleven seventeen, By Abraham, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said in Isaac, your seed shall be called concluding or accounting, the King James says, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And in other words, in Abraham's mind, when God spoke to him and he got up the next morning and said, come on, Isaac, we're headed to Mount Moriah. Isaac was as good as dead to him. And when Abraham told his servants, you guys wait here, 
Isaac and I are going to go worship, and we'll be back. In Abraham's mind, according to Hebrews chapter 11, he figured if he was going to kill Isaac, that God was going to raise him from the dead. No problem to Abraham. He staggered not at the promises of God when Isaac was born. And now, what big deal is it for God to raise him from the dead? That's the kind of faith that Abraham had in God. No wonder he led the blessed life. I was thinking about these two events. His call of God, Hebrews 11 tells us about. And then the, kind of the last time you see him being tested or in a trial when he offers Isaac. I mean, once you've been willing to sacrifice your only son, the son you love, what else is a test after that? But you might wonder, what kind of God is it? I mean, I left sin. I determined to follow God. I made up my mind to be a child of God. And why in the world, after all that I've done to serve God and everything I've walked away from, why in the world would God still test me? Why would God still allow there to be trials in my life? Why would God still place opportunities in my life for me to cave into the pressure or do the right thing? It is because this life, the blessed life, ultimately is a faith life. And our faith will be tested time and again to see whether or not we will embrace God's plan for our lives. Whether we will enter into a relationship with God and not just rely on spiritual experiences. Can we trust God as a source of blessing? That we don't have to maneuver and manipulate. That we can return to God a tenth plus more. That we can make sure we don't take ill-gotten gain. That we really believe that God's way is right and makes sense. This faith life demonstrates complete obedience to God. No matter how much sense it doesn't make to you. How little sense it makes to you. There may be times that it does lead you to a step of faith that you think is so irrational. There may be a time when he tells you to empty your bank account. There may be a time he tells you to do something that does not make any sense at all to you. But on the other side of Mount Moriah will always make perfect sense. Would you please stand? Well, tonight we're talking about the blessed life. From the life of Abraham, would you embrace God's plan for your life? Will you cultivate a relationship with God? Will you trust God as a source of blessing? Will you demonstrate complete obedience? And will you simply, really in summary of all of that, live by faith in God? For that is what pleasing God is all about. Now in my message tonight, I've kind of chosen... To not spotlight Abraham's fumbles of faith. The foibles of being afraid to tell the king of Egypt that Sarah was his wife. And said, tell, tell, her, tell him you're my sister. And in the time, at least when Abraham says, Lord, let Eliezer be my heir. And 
And then there's Ishmael that is born to Abraham and Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. Because when you read through the Bible, it's probably a lot more honest than we are about our own lives. Because we see Abraham as a human being with a few fumbles along the way. But when you read his story, you don't read about the quiz he failed. You read about him passing the class of faith in God. Because there's only one person who has ever led the perfect life. And it wasn't Abraham. And it's certainly not going to be you or me. So if we're trying to say, okay, God, I'm disqualified. You know, I really messed up there. I doubted you here. Well, you're in good company. Because this blessed man, Abraham, led a less than perfect life and is the father of the faithful. But the faith life really is forsaking all. I trust him. So I want to give you an opportunity tonight to respond to the word of God. So if you would, just step out from where you are. This is our custom, you know, to spend a little time tying a knot in what God has said to us. And I want to encourage you that beyond Sundays and Wednesdays that you would find an accountability partner for spiritual disciplines. Make a commitment to God. If you get a bread chart out of the foyer, there's little boxes to check that will let you know whether you read that or not and it will hold you accountable to your commitment to God. Amen? For a strong church is made up of disciples of Jesus Christ, people who follow him daily. And if you have a day that you're not the perfect disciple, his mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is to all of us. Amen? Let's pray right now. Lord, come to you right now in Jesus' name. I thank you, God, for your mercy in my life. And I thank you for Abraham, Lord the father of the faithful Lord I pray Lord that you would call someone today maybe when they look in their past they cannot find a patriarch or a matriarch they cannot find anyone Lord who walked with you before them but like Abraham God they can begin a legacy of faith in walking with you I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would help me be a disciple of yours to walk in faith with you, I pray in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. 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 I pray, oh God, in your name, Jesus, that I would embrace your plan for my life cultivate a relationship with you to trust you as a source of blessing to demonstrate complete obedience to you Lord to walk by faith oh God and not by sight in the name of Jesus Christ oh Lord I give you honor and praise tonight for you're the one who calls Lord and you're the one Lord who 
gives us grace every day to live for you, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Minister tonight, God, strengthen us, I pray, to be your disciples, Lord, to be your people, oh God. Hallelujah.